Genesis 3, verses 1 to 12. Exodus 3, verses 1 to 12. We'll read that together, and we'll also read the last verses of Exodus 2 as we come into the the text. Exodus 2, verse 23, we'll start at. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire, Out of the midst of a bush, he looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. Then the Lord saw that he, when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. And I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Beloved Church of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the burning bush is used as a church logo all over the world. Early in the 18th century, the Huguenots, the the French Reformed churches, decided to adopt an emblem of the burning bush together with a Latin expression, flagor non consumor, which means I burn but am not consumed. Ironically, the burning bush could also be found among the artwork of the church that was responsible for burning the Huguenots, who saw it as a prophetic picture of Mary, who gave birth to Jesus but remained forever a virgin. Many years later, the man responsible for binding and printing the acts of their major assembly 
put the emblem of a burning bush on the front cover. Uh, he put the, the, the emblem of burning bush on the front cover and it soon became a logo associated with Scottish Presbyterian churches. The emblem now came with the words, uh, those Latin words which mean, uh, yet it was not consumed. And the example I included on the listening aids this week, if you printed them off, it's still being used by our sister churches in Scotland, the Free Churches Continuing and the Free Church of Scotland. Well, from Scotland, this same emblem, logo, traveled to Presbyterian churches all over the world with slight adjustments to the shape of the symbol and the words that accompany it. For example, in Ireland, the motto, the motto is uh, burning but flourishing. So churches that have the burning bush as their emblem use it as a symbol of the suffering of the church in this age, the abiding and preserving presence of God in the midst of his church, and ultimately the self-revelation of God to his people. And this is the gospel I proclaim to you this morning under the theme, The Lord Comforts His Suffering Church from the Burning Bush. We'll see that the Lord appears on holy ground, he attends to our prayers, and he assures us of his victory. The time of slavery that was promised by the Lord in Genesis 15 was coming to an end. And the Lord had set Moses apart from birth, blessed him with zeal for God's people, and then refined him for 40 years among the Midianites. We saw that in Exodus chapter 2. When Moses was 80 years old, he had learned the patience and humility of a shepherd and was still healthy enough to live outside, to travel across a wilderness, to, to, to live off the land, and do all those things necessary to lead a flock of sheep across the wilderness. He still cared for his father-in-law's flock rather than getting his own flock, which showed that during all these years, he was still expecting to return back to deliver his people. The Holy Spirit reveals that Moses remained a man who was interested in, in the wonders of God's creation. And his experience in the wilderness confirms that the burning bush that he turned aside to look at was not just a, an optical illusion that might have been caused by flowers or strange light reflections. Although for the fearful in the wilderness, a burning bush would be a reason to run away and, and to get away from any chance of a wildfire, Moses was drawn in. He said, as we read in Exodus 3, verse 3, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. Well, the great sight that Moses turned aside to see turned out to be the angel of the Lord who appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. The angel of the Lord introduced in our text as an angel that should is introduced in our text as an angel that should already be known to us because we read about this angel of the Lord already in Genesis 16 when he appeared to Hagar in the desert and exhorted her to return back to the church. And although the distinction is kept clear, the angel of the Lord is very closely identified to the Lord 
in our text. And you can see that it is the Lord who saw and God who called out. Moses could learn for himself about the depth of God's glory and the plurality of the persons in the triune God who as one God is intimately involved in the lives of all God's creatures. Exodus 3 describes an appearance of God on the earth. It's called a theophany. Moses would soon find out that it was the Lord God who was meeting him on that special mountain, which was known as both Mount Horeb and Mount Sinai. Perhaps the two sides of the mountains had different names. The burning bush was a clear display of God's sovereign power over all creation. For only the Creator could control the effects of the flame of fire in such a way that it did not consume the bush and turn its leaves into branch and branches into ash. Yet, appear, yet it appears that the Lord God, who had hardly been mentioned in the first few chapters of Exodus, and who had permitted his people to suffer such anguish and hardships, was hardly known, hardly known to Moses. When the Lord God called Moses by name two times, Moses responds in a very ordinary, very casual way. He says, here I am, which is like saying, yes, it's me. Moses still had a lot to learn about the holiness of the Lord. And as he draws closer, he is stopped abruptly with the command, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet. For the place you are standing is holy ground. The one to whom the Lord would later give the instructions for the tabernacle was blessed with a foretaste of the gospel of the holy ground. In Exodus 3 verse 8, the Lord describes this visit. He says what he he did. You can see that there. He says, I have come down. He's come down to earth just like he had done when he had walked with Adam and Eve in the garden. The holiness of of heaven, God in all his glory, touched down on the earth, and Moses was commanded to show respect for his almighty creator by removing the sandals from his feet. Sandals carry dirt and make us think of travel. And when we take them off, we show our humility our desire to remain in that place, to pay attention. And if the announcement that he had made the ground holy by his presence was not enough, the Lord further revealed his holiness with the words in verse 6, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Moses learned that the God of the great patriarchs who were still very much alive with him in glory was also the same God as his very own father. Once again, the Lord made it clear that he was doing a great and a powerful work through the generation, through believers and their children. And Moses was privileged to be a part of this amazing work of God. God who appeared to him on the mountain is not only almighty in his his glory and his power and his sovereign control over all creation, 
but also he is eternal in his loving relationship with believers and their children in the church, in the covenant. And just as Moses learned that he was a part of this historical work of God through the generations because his father and mother trusted in the Lord, so also we can understand our place in history. We can understand that we too are blessed to be a part in God's saving work in the world through the covenant. God also says to us, I am God of your believing parents and the patriarchs. You too are a part of my amazing plan. Well, the combination of God's holiness and his love through the generations. It led Moses to be overwhelmed. He, he hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. This picture of the mighty mediator servant now barefoot and covering his face in fear before the gracious appearance of the Lord in the burning bush. That picture should be etched in our minds. Do you see how that picture so early in the history of Revelation captures the gospel in a nutshell for us? Do you see how that captures what it means to be a part of Christ's church? May that picture be in our hearts and our minds like a flame of fire in a bush that is not consumed that leads us to fall on our knees and worship. Whenever you feel that you got it figured out, remember the burning bush. Remember the mediator, barefoot, hiding his face in fear before the holy God who was reaching out to him with deliverance. The history of salvation repeats that gracious theme of the Lord who comes down and intervenes. The Lord who came looking for Adam and Eve in the garden after the fall into sin. The Lord who appeared to the patriarchs like you read about in Genesis. The Lord who spoke to Moses in the burning bush and then again dwelt among Israel in the cloud, the tabernacle, the temple. All this pointing to the day when the Son of God would take on our human flesh and the Holy Spirit would come down in the flame of fire in Pentecost. The history of salvation repeatedly mentions the theme of that relationship between the Lord as our God and believers and their children as his people. The gospel is now our bodies. Our, our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. Our bodies are holy ground. God is with us. He dwells with us. We are called to stand in awe of God's work within our hearts to remove our sandals, to, to rest in the peace that Christ has obtained for us, the peace that we may have with our Creator. The Holy God reached down in love to mankind lost in, in, misery of, in the misery of their sins to announce that just as He is God to our ancestors, the line of the covenant promises, He is also our God. He is God for us in our distress. We have a holy, holy, holy God who is willing to reach down to us sinners 
in his outpouring love. And we humble ourselves before him. The Lord attends to our prayers. The gospel message revealed in Exodus 2 verse 23 all the way to 3 verse 12. The gospel message is that the enemy did not manage to swallow up the people of God. The Israelites were were being burned, but they were not consumed. And when you read Genesis 15 and, and you read the first chapters of Exodus, just think of the time. 400 years of slavery, of suffering. The Lord through with his church through it all. We think this time of change and uncertainty now is, is hard to bear. It's a few years. 400 years. And the enemy did not manage to swallow up the people of God. They were being burned, yet not consumed. And although it appears that in that time they may have been relying on the gods of Egypt for, for a while, at some time, at some point in, in history, the people of Israel who were groaning because of their slavery, they cried out to the Lord for help. And you can see that mentioned at the end of chapter 2, and then again in verse 7 of chapter 3 and verse 9. The Lord highlights, then they cried out to me. The slavery, the affliction, the suffering, the horrible treatment under their evil taskmasters was like a scourge of discipline that brought the people of God to their knees in humble dependence upon the Lord. The Lord can use hardships and government oppression for long periods of time to reveal to us how much we depend on Him, to drive His church to to pray more fervently for His help and rescue. The prayer of God's people coming up out of their, their trials made it clear that the flames in which they were suffering were not going to consume them. When he commissioned Moses as leader and rescuer of his people, the Lord connected it very closely to the cries of the people, the the cries, the prayers of God's people. They are the signs of life, of faith. And the Lord attends to our prayers by coming down beside us to speaking to us from his holiness out of his covenant love. The blessed words of comfort that Moses heard and later told the Israelites about continue to comfort and encourage all of us in our tribulations in our lives. What a blessing it is to hear even today the comforting words from the Lord that he sees our afflictions, he hears our cries, he knows our sufferings. The theme is so important that the Lord repeats it, not only verse 7, but then again in verse 9. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. It's that gospel message we sang about in, or we sing it, we sang about in Psalm 65, and we'll sing about again in Psalm 34. Although he is holy, and he is in heaven. His holiness also comes down. He pays attention to his church on earth. The Lord has his eyes on the righteous, and his ears are open to their cries so that he hears our prayers. 
And brothers and sisters, we can see how this passage is, is again leading us to, to call out to the Lord in our distress. Trust in his sovereign power. Enrich your lives with the promises of his grace. And although we may wonder, and we face a lot of hardships, each one of us as individuals and families and, and all the different circumstances we're in, and we may wonder why the Lord does not always respond immediately, why sometimes he waits 400 years to give us respite from our suffering. The Lord is always in control. Hear the gospel of Exodus 3. He sees, he hears, he knows, and in his grace, he also preserves his church. We do not need to be afraid. Though we burn, we are not consumed, for the Lord is always at work. And the central promise of chapter 3 is found in that verse between God's announcements in verse 7 and 9. There the gospel, as, the, as he reveals that the prayers of the church have come to him in verse 8, we read, And I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. The gospel message for the church is not only that God sees and he cares, but also that he is eager to take action so that his people might again live with him in the joy of fellowship. The Lord shows us that he has more in store for his people than just this testing and this slavery and this affliction, the suffering. The promise for the Israelites was that they would be freed from the devil-influenced, hate-filled oppressors so that they might be able to serve their true master in a good and a broad land. And the nations that the Lord speaks about that were listed, they were those that dwelt in the different regions of the promised land whom the Lord had announced would eventually be removed because of their persistence in sin. Not yet in the time of Abraham, but when their sin was full. That would be the time in the Lord's wisdom. The Lord promised his church that his enemies would be removed, like we sing in Psalm 37. And the Lord Jesus said in the, in the Sermon on the Mount, and the meek would inherit the land. The physical blessings that the Lord describes in our text, in our text make it clear that it is a good thing when it is the Lord our shepherd who leads us through the valley of the shadow of death, and into green pastures. The Lord knows what we as, as human beings consider a good life. Instead of crammed slave quarters, his people could look forward to, to spacious properties in a land flowing with milk and honey. An abundance of milk points to large crops and fertile grazing pastures. And an abundance of honey points to lots of flowers and healthy fruit trees so that together these words promise a place of riches and peace and safety. The promised land is described as a type of paradise, goal. It's consistent with all the Lord's descriptions of life in the kingdom of heaven when he is our God. 
Our text also teaches us about how the Lord deals with his covenant people. We see what the Lord wants for his church. We see how our text gives us hope today. It's much greater, our hope is much greater than just a good promised land where there's no government oppression, but it includes a promised eternal home where there is no sin. The gospel pointed to in our text. The Lord does not want us to live an unhappy life in bondage to sin. He urges us then in our struggles to to cry out to him for deliverance, for new life that our Lord Jesus Christ has obtained for us by his work. And so we pray as our Lord Jesus taught us to pray, Lord, deliver us from the evil one. And we pray for strength to resist temptations. And we pray for liberation from the sins that entangle our feet. And we look to the Lord who comforts his people from the burning bush with the promise that he attends to our prayers. In him, we can be sure that we have the victory. We know Jesus Christ as king in heaven. We know that he wants us to be joyful citizens in the kingdom of heaven where we can worship him for all eternity in freedom. And the Lord assures us of his victory. The Lord announced in verse 8 that he came down to deliver his people from slavery, that he came down to bring them up to a good land. But he only announces that he is there to deliver and he is there to bring them up after his holy splendor touched down on the earth on a lonely mountain west of the wilderness of Midian. And then that makes us ask the question, if the Lord came down to deliver his people, why did he need to speak to an old, humble fugitive leading his sheep far from home? Moses heard his name called out because the Lord, who had raised him up, who had prepared him for this mission, was planning to use him as an instrument to bring Israel out of Egypt. And although it doesn't seem to make sense to Moses, really doesn't seem to make sense to to any other leaders in homes or in churches, leaders ordained by God, in his wisdom, the Lord decided to use people to carry out his church-building work. Couldn't, Couldn't God just speak from heaven, show this glory that that Moses had a foretaste of in in the burning bush? Couldn't he just get the job done quickly? As Moses stood there with his feet bare and his face covered in the presence of, of the almighty God of his fathers who had descended to earth in his glory, his question is clear. Who am I? Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? We are often humbled by the responsibilities the Lord in heaven gives to us. We often feel very inadequate for the tasks that he lays before us to do. And when we ask God, who am I that I should do this? It's a confession 
that we need his help. The Lord's response to Moses shows that he understood very well that his servant needs the Lord on his side. And the Lord's answer is clear and compassionate. It it echoes through the ages even to each one of us as we we struggle with with our calling. And first he reminds Moses that the Lord himself would be with him. This is all that we need to know to have confidence in our calling. We never have to face God's enemies alone. We are mere instruments in the hands of a sovereign God who knows the end from the beginning. The work we are a part of is really the Lord's work. The Lord who promised Abraham that after 400 years of affliction, he would bring judgment on the nation they serve so that they would come out from there with great possessions was the same Lord who promised to be with Moses this time. The servant of God can be assured of the victory of his mission because the Lord himself guaranteed success. That's the confidence that God's people can walk around with on this earth. That explains how the Lord Jesus, as he came, did his mission with, with such confidence when he came to deliver God's people from sin. This is the confidence we may have when we faithfully walk with the Lord who calls us to serve him. And in his grace, the Lord also gave Moses a sign that God himself had sent him. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. The sign is, Moses, when I meet you at the first checkpoint, you'll know that I have the victory. This mountain that the Lord was talking about was Mount Horeb, which is also known as Mount Sinai, the very place where the Lord would meet with Moses to give him the Ten Commandments, the way of life in redemption that were written by God's finger on two tablets of stone. The sign that the Lord gave to Moses was that when they met again, the church would be celebrating their deliverance by serving God in worship. That's how you see that the Lord has the victory when his church is serving him, worshiping him, living with joy in the commandments. When we have the desire to live our life to the glory of God, according to his word, it's a sign of his victory. Once again, our text reveals the significance of, our, of Jesus Christ, whom the Lord sent to deliver his church from the evil one so that we can worship him and live in fellowship with, with him and all the laws of the Lord. When we are overwhelmed by our task, the Lord reminds us that he is with us and he assures us of victory by pointing to the Holy Spirit who is in our hearts, who is guiding us, who gives us the desire to worship him even in the most difficult situations. The Lord comforts his church by the gospel of the burning bush. Everything that the Lord said to Moses is true for us for he is the same God of the covenant. And yet it's in much richer measure for us in Jesus Christ. 
since the Son of God came down to earth to suffer and to die and to pay for our sins, we may live in peace with God. We may know that he is hearing our prayers in Jesus Christ, our advocate in heaven before the Father. The burning bush is a reminder that although we may suffer the fires of tribulation, we will not be consumed. We cannot be consumed. Although there are many things in life that cause us to despair, the Lord gives us hope again this morning by directing our eyes to our eternal King, Jesus Christ. If it depended on our own strength or the strength of our leaders, there is no hope. But we praise the Lord that He says, I will be with you. He assures us of the victory. And we can know that hope is there before us again. He says, I'll, I'll meet you again. Then you'll see. For 1 Corinthians 13 says, Then we will see him face to face. And the fellowship of love so clearly revealed on the mountain of God. Brothers and sisters, do not lose heart. Let us endure. Hear the comforting words of our Lord who speaks to us from the burning bush. If you are praying, if you are worshiping, it's a sign that you're his forever. Amen. We'll sing together standing, if you're able to stand, the psalm that was referred to as Psalm 34, where we will pay attention to how the Lord speaks about how he sees us, he hears us, he's with us, he loves us. Psalm 34, stanza 6, 7, 8, and 9.